So it has been um, since November that we were last in First Thessalonians, and uh, we didn't get to finish this book together. So there were just two sermons left. Uh, is all we had for to finish this uh, to finish this this book. So I want to do that the, this morning and next week, uh, if the Lord allows, and um, finish our finish our study. A study that I have greatly benefited from. Uh, hopefully you have as well, and um, understand and have appreciated this book in uh, in, in deeper ways than you, than you did before. Uh, let's read uh, verses twelve to the end of the chapter because in this section. The Apostle Paul is finishing the book with a series of rapid-fire exhortations to the, uh, to the believers here in Thessalonica, a very, very young church that Paul's, quite frankly, he's amazed that they're still faithful uh, to the Lord in the circumstances they're facing. So let's finish, with, uh, this, finish by reading uh, the, the, the remainder of this book here. Verse 12, he says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now our passage this morning. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're blessed to gather this morning uh, to open the scriptures. And uh, as we do so, we would ask that you would give us the, the ability to set aside the things that, uh, that grasp our attention or that, that, that seek to distract us, and may you help us uh, think carefully and focus on what your truth says because uh, we're in constant need of hearing truth from you. Uh, Lord, you are the God of all truth, the source of truth. You are truth. And so we come recognizing that what you have said is good and right and holy and it's best for us and it needs to shape our thinking. And so we come weekly looking forward to the opportunity to hear from you and your word so that we might uh, live in a way that pleases you and represent you well uh, to a lost and dying world. For we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our first uh, our first. Our verses we're considering this morning are verses 19 to 22, as I said, and uh, the title of the message for, the, for Marshall, this is for you, uh, do not despise prophecies, test everything, if we can, concise the, can, can or bring the passage to a concise summary. But we'll begin this morning with this question, how do we know if something is from God? Okay, how do we know if something is from God? So all around us, 
uh, as we live out our Christian lives, there are claims of people hearing from God. Uh, There are sermons and teachings that happen on a regular basis that claim to represent God and, and his word. Most recently, on the college campus of Asbury, there was the claim that God brought revival among the students there at that, at that school. So how do we know if something is a work of God or, or not a work of God? Some people are quick to, quick to believe and, uh, and accept everything that they see and hear as coming from God. Uh, others are more skeptical in nature and and not easily embracing things that they claim to come from God. And others are, are, are just maybe confused and, and wonder at times, is, is this a work of God or is something else going on here? And, and they, they sort of, uh, they sort of uh, wonder to themselves. Now, this is a question we ought always to be asking, okay? Whether we're listening to a sermon, whether we're listening to a piece of advice, whether we're, whether we're uh, listening to, to some idea that's out there, that this is a question we should always be asking is, is this a movement that, that is, is, is coming from God? So we want to be discerning people and, and always be asking this question. Okay? We can't just embrace every claim that's out there. Like if they say it's from God, then, then it must be from God. Rather, we want to be careful about what we see and hear. And, it, and it's not quenching the Spirit if we ask questions or seek more examination of a matter as to tell whether it, it comes from the Lord or not. So as I mentioned this past week, I, I, sent, or as I, I, I did send out this past week an article by uh, Kevin DeYoung, who, uh, I, which I thought this would be a helpful article for us and maybe thinking through some of the events then, and some of the news surrounding Asbury. And uh, the article didn't really dive into the events at Asbury College per se, but what they did was direct our attention to Scripture, particularly the, 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 the revival that took place under King Josiah when the, when the book of the law was found in the house of the Lord, and for some reason nobody knew it was there, and, and, and revival, uh, Josiah led the people in revival and, and led them back to, back to God. And, and he, he writes and, and, and draws our attention to that passage, and he notes five things that happen that identify a true work of God or identify a, a, a revival or a, a reformation or a renewal or awakening or whatever you want to call it. The first, he says, is that when, when God is at work, there is a recovery of the word. Okay? In, in any movement that, that is of God, there is a return of the people of God to the word of God. That they, they, they see the, the, the centrality of the word for their lives and they embrace the authority of the word of God. So that was, number one, a recovery of the word. Number two, he says there is a restored sense of the fear of God. In other words, when, when God is at work, people, have a, a, people develop a big view of who God is and a small view of who they are. And that's how you know it's a, it's a, it's a work of God because of, of a, a renewed sense of, uh, a restored sense of fear of God. Thirdly, he says that there is a return to God through confession and repentance, we're broken over our sin, and we, and we, we confess and repent it. Number four, he says a renewed spiritual commitment. He says that when it's a work of God, there is a renewed spiritual commitment and accountability. And number five, he says that there is a reformation of true piety. 
That is, when it's a true work of God, we begin to walk in godliness in ways that we had not before. And I think these are helpful marks of any movement of God in, in, any, in any time period in history that these kinds of marks will, be, uh, will identify that God is truly at work in the lives of, of believers. Now, I draw your attention this morning to this question, how do we know if this is something that, where God is at work, or how do we know this is a work of God? Because in a sense, that is the question our passage is addressing this morning. How do we know if something is a work of God? Now, in our passage, verses 19 to 22, the issue is different, but the, the question we're asking is the same. The issue in, in this passage, in verses 19 to 22, is addressing the authenticity of, of prophets and, and prophecy. Okay, so that's the, the question this passage. And, and this passage was written at a time in church history when the gift of prophecy was still active in the New Testament church. And I'll argue in a few minutes that the gift of prophecy has ceased today, but there are still implications in this passage for us as we think about identifying uh, God's work in our midst. Okay? We're to de- develop the same ability that they needed to develop to discern any teachings or any movements or any ideas that are claiming to come from God as to whether or not they indeed are from God. Now, as we work our way through this passage, we'll first unpack what's taking place here in Thessalonica, because it's going to involve a little bit of explanation to understand what's taking place in this passage. Then after we do that, what I want to do is I want to come back and draw out some implications for our lives and, and how we think through these matters of identifying a work of God. So as you look at the passage, verses 19 to 22, there are five related commands, right? So you pick these up in verse 19. Number one, do not quench the spirit. Number two, do not despise prophecies. Number three, test everything. Number four, hold fast to what is good. And number five, abstain from every form of evil. So we've got, we've got five commands, but we can break them up into two sections. There's two negative commands in verses 19 and 20. And then three positive commands to follow that. This morning we'll begin with the negative commands, and then we'll work our way toward the positive commands before we unpack the implications. Okay, so let's first look at the negative commands. And we can sum them up in this way. Do not resist the work of the Spirit, verses 19 and 20. Do not resist the work of the Spirit. So if you look at verses 19 and 20, here are the first two commands. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, the word quench is an appropriate term for this particular context, because the work of the Spirit in the Scriptures is often tied to this idea of, of fire. So, Isaiah 4.4, the Spirit's work is called a spirit of burning. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11, or verse 11, John the Baptist says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in Acts chapter 2, when they're waiting in the upper room, the Spirit of God comes upon them. He comes upon them in what is described in the passage as tongues of of fire. So when Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, he's likely using this analogy of water. In other words, like don't pour water on the work that the Spirit is doing. Or as one commentator translates this phrase, stop putting out the Spirit. 
in the midst of, in the, midst of the, the church there. Okay? We have to sometimes uh, remind our sons of this. When my wife will have a, a candle on the island, they like to crawl up onto the stools and, and blow the candle out for no apparent reason. We're like, stop, stop blowing the candle out, right? Just, just, just mind your own business, okay? So in a sense, that's what he's, what he's saying here. Stop, stop putting out the Spirit. Now, the specific way in which the Thessalonians were, were quenching the Spirit or putting out the Spirit is found then in verse 20, okay? It says they were despising prophecies, somehow limiting the use of, of prophecies in the church. And, and, and it, the way this is worded is just something that there was, was already going on in their midst, okay? They were, they were putting some sort of hindrance to the Spirit's work in despising prophecies, now, as we read these two commands, we're already asking in our minds, okay, what, what was really going on here in the church of Thessalonica, and why does Paul give these two commands? And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're starting to step into unfamiliar territory when we're talking about this gift of prophecy and how it was functioning in the New Testament church. So, so what is, what's going on here in this passage? Well, we can't say for sure because the passage doesn't give us a lot of details. But it seems that what's happening is something of a pendulum swing in response to the misuse of prophecy. Okay, let me say that again so you understand what's, what's taking place in this passage. There seems to be something of a pendulum swing in response to the misuse of prophecy here in Thessalonica. So likely what's going on is the gift of prophecy is being abused in this church. And rather than apply their biblical responsibility to test the prophets and test the prophecies and to to see what's legitimate, instead they responded by shutting down prophecy altogether, okay? Rejecting any prophetic word that would happen there in the ministry in their church. Now, if this is the case, then what we have here is the opposite of what was taking place in the church of Corinth. In the church of Corinth, the spiritual gifts were being misused, but the Corinthians were just allowing the, the abuses of the spiritual gifts to continue. Okay, so that was one thing that was happening. In, in Thessalonica, it was likely the opposite of thing happening. Okay, prophecies were being misused, and so they just canned all the prophets. Okay, no more, no more prophecy. And the result was that they were quenching the Spirit's work in their midst. Now, in order to understand why this is a big deal, we need to know something of how prophecy functioned in the New Testament. So prophecy played an important role in the early church. At the time, you'll remember that the scriptures were incomplete. Okay? The, they had the Old Testament, and they had the, the, prophet, or they had the apostolic teaching, but they lacked the whole Bible. They couldn't open their Bible to Philippians or Acts or 1 Thessalonians like I instructed us to do this morning. Because of this, uh, the, 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 they, were, they were somehow limited in their ability to, to hear from the whole counsel of God. And so because of this, prophets played an important role in communicating God's will to his people. In fact, what we find is that they're so important that the Apostle Paul puts them on the same level as, as apostles in this sense that, that they, or they were alongside apostles in serving as the foundation of the church. Right? Ephesians chapter 2.20, he says of the, of the apostles and the prophets that they served as the foundation of the church. That's how important they were. 
Now, the gift of prophecy fun- functioned in a number of ways. So let me have you turn to a, a couple of different passages here so we can see how the, how the role of prophecy functioned. Okay? So first start in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and then our second passage would be Acts chapter 13. But in Acts chapter 11, we see that, that sometimes prophecies functioned to predict the future. Okay? Chapter 11, and consider verses uh, 27 and following. This is the church up in Antioch, and it says this now, In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Look at verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Jerusalem. Okay, so in this case, there was a, there was a prophetic word to the church in Antioch that there would be a famine. So sometimes in the New Testament, prophecies serve to predict the future. There's another one later in Acts 21 by the same prophet Agabus that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be bound and, and taken captive. Okay, so, so sometimes prophecies predicted the futures. Sometimes prophecies gave guidance. Look at Acts chapter 13. You'll remember this passage, pretty familiar one. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, so then in this case, what's happening here is, is Paul and Barnabas are called to the mission field, and it happens through prophetic word. Okay, there's prophets there, and through the Spirit, they're instructed for Paul and Barnabas to, to head on to, uh, to, 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 in this case, the Galatian area. So sometimes prophets gave guidance in this case. Now one more passage, and that's over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. Okay, so turn over to 1 Corinthians. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3. It says this, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people, and notice he says this, for their building up and encouragement and consolation. So the goal of, of prophecy was not just to predict the future, not just to give instruction, but what we see here in chapter 14, verse 3, that it was to build up and edify the church. So the prophets and prophecy played an important role in the life of the church. Now, because of the importance of prophecy, we're not surprised then to find that false prophets arose in the life of the New Testament to lead people away from the truth. And Jesus predicted this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, there will be individuals who they look like sheep on the outside, but you begin to tear off the costume, and what you find underneath are wolves. And this would arise within the New Testament context. Second Peter, in our scripture reading this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, said this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And here's what it says that they'll do. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction. But here's the sad thing. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So false prophets as Jesus predicted and as Peter says here, would, would come and be part of their midst to, to seek people away from the truth, to deceive them and to build themselves up. Now this was likely the case in Thessalonica, that false prophets were present, and because of the abuse of, of the gift of prophecy, they, they shut down the gift of, of, of prophets. So in fact, notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I think this will be the last passage I really have you turn to. But notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There are issues going on in this church, and Paul's writing to, to correct them, particularly pertaining to their knowledge of, of the Lord's return. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says this. Sorry, yeah, verses 1 through 4, actually. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being, being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Okay, now why would he need to write them not to be shaken in their mind or alarmed? And he says this, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Okay, so what's taking place in the context here of, of Thessalonica is likely that people are being led astray and deceived about the return of the Lord. And prophecies are causing disunity and chaos within the church here. And so the response of the Thessalonian church or the Thessalonian leaders or, or whomever, their response is to say, enough is enough. All right? No more prophecy. And so they shut down the whole operation. And in doing so, they are quenching the work of the Spirit. So Paul's response is to say, okay, hang on. All right? Just, just hang on. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a valuable work of the Spirit that you're missing in this case if you despise these prophecies. So let's not quickly quench the Spirit. Okay, so that's what's taking place here in Thessalonica. Now, just a quick note on, on prophecy and today. If I can pause for a moment and just note that, that, that I don't, believe, and we as a church uh, don't believe that the gift of prophecy is still functioning in the modern church, just like the gift of the apostles, the prophecy, as I said, served as the foundation of the church. And once the foundation had been laid, and once a foundation is laid, you don't keep building more and more foundation. Once the church reached its maturity, and it's tough to say when exactly that happened, and, and once the New Testament scriptures were complete, there was no more need for the gift of prophecy or for special direct revelation from God because the church possessed it in his, in his scriptures. And so for this reason, we would see the gift of prophecy not continuing today and being an active part in the church. I might also add this side note. That, that where you do find the gift of prophecy attempting to be practiced today, it is less than helpful. And in many places, extremely, extremely damaging for God's people and for the church. On a practical note, if, if COVID taught us anything, 
it's that the gift of prophecy is no longer functioning in the church because somebody surely would have seen it coming had the gift of prophecy still been active in our church. But as to my knowledge, there were no prophets out there saying, beware of COVID-19. I digress. All right, move on to uh, our second point. Okay, now let's look at the second, the second set of commands, the positive commands, verses 21 and 22. If we were to sum up the, the positive commands, it would be this. Test everything, keep the good, reject the bad. Okay, test everything, keep the good, reject the bad. Okay, so he's, he gives his first, he, first he gives two negative commands. Okay, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecy. But then he gives three positive commands in the, in the remaining verses. And these are set over and against the negative commands that he gives. So look at them again in verses 21 and 22. He says, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Okay, so now this first command here is this. Test everything. And the result will be one of two things will happen. Either you'll hold fast to what is good, or you'll reject what is, what is evil. Okay, so that's how these commands are related. Now, the first command, to test everything, it, it's not clear in this passage who has the responsibility to test these, these prophets and these, these prophecies. Because in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that there is a gift of prophecy in the local church, but he also notes that some people have the ability to discern the spirits and to discern the prophets that are speaking from God and the prophets that are not. Right? Let me just read for you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. He says this, To another, he's talking about the spiritual gifts that are dispersed there among the, the Corinthians. He says, To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, so what we see here is that there's the gift of prophecy, and then there's the ability to discern the, the gift of prophecy and, and true and false prophets. Then in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29, he says this, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. So in the church, at least in Corinth here, there were gifted individuals who were able to discern the accuracy of, of, of prophecy. So that may be the case in 1 Thessalonians. That it, the ones who are responsible to test the spirits are the ones who have been given the spiritual gift to be able to test the spirits. But it may be, and it may seem better to see, that, that everyone in the, the Thessalonian church had the responsibility to test what was being said. And the reason I say that is because Paul says, test everything. So he may mean more than just prophecy. Anything claiming to come from God, claiming to be true, that every believer has the responsibility to test what is being said. Now, this idea of testing everything, it has the basic meaning of testing to verify the character of something. So, like, when I was a boy, I found it annoying to wash my hands before dinner. You'd be outside playing, and then you, you come in, you're really hungry, and the last thing you want to do is go wash your hands before you eat. And so I would try to, try to get to the dinner table without having to go through that, that rigorous law. And so the, the one downside was, though, at our table, we always held hands to pray. 
And so I would hold my mom's hand or my dad's hand or my older sister's, and they would say, oh, your hands are disgusting. Go wash your hands. I could never, as a boy, figure out how they could tell that, that my hands felt, because to me, they looked perfectly clean. You know, how, could, how could they tell? Now fast forward, and, and when the boys come to dinner, and you can feel Blake's hands like, oh, this is disgusting, you know, and even Brooke yells at Blake. And so I'll tell him, I say, go wash your hands, and then I give him this, I give him this piece of information. I said, and I want to smell the soap. All right, so that's, <laughs> that's a, in other words, you go do this, and then at the end, there's going to be a test. And I'm going to test it against the accuracy of, of do I smell the soap or do I not smell the soap? And, and he does a pretty good job at least getting some soap on there so it at least smells like that. But he does a pretty good job with that. Now here's what Paul's saying. He says, I want you to test what's, what's being said and I want you to test it against a standard. Test it against the standard of, 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 of truthfulness. Okay? Now in this passage, he says what's good and what's evil... But there are a couple other passages that give us more insight into how we know the, the truthfulness of a prophet or the, the falseness of a prophet. Okay? It seems like in Scripture the, the tests that are set up are, are accuracy and, and fruit. Well, I might add a third one that says, like, do the prophecies come true if one's predicting the future? But for our sake of discussion this morning, accuracy and fruit seem to be the, the two key tests for testing the validity of, of prophecy. Because if, if you remember in 1 John chapter 4, in fact, why don't you turn over to 1 John chapter 4 and we'll look at this passage together. 1 there's a, there's a test set up here for understanding the, the, and verifying the accuracy of, of prophecy and, and prophets. So he says in 1 John chapter 4, he says this in the first three verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, or by this you know which ones come from the, the Spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, does not confess Jesus, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Okay, so John sets up this exhortation to test the spirits. And then he sets up the, he sets up the standard is, is accuracy or truthfulness or, or orthodoxy. And he says this, he says, by this you know the spirit. Every, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh then you know, it's a true, you know it's a true prophet. Now, what John is not saying is John is not saying that this is the only test of orthodoxy. Okay? In John's context, the particular doctrine that they were denying was the deity of Christ. And John says, this is how you know that they're a true prophet because they affirm the deity of Christ. If we were to expand that, we would say that, that prophecy has to measure up with apostolic teaching. Not just strictly the deity of Christ, but all apostolic teaching. And here's how you know whether it's valid prophecy. Does it match up with, with Scripture and, and, and the apostles' teaching? There's another passage as well, then, that so, so accuracy is the first test, but fruit is the second test. And you don't have to turn to this one, but I'll, just, I'll read it quickly for us from, from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is, 
is warning, the, uh, is warning these believers on the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this in Matthew 7, 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he goes on to say this, You will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to say, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. In other, in other words, you should be able to look at the character of the false prophets. You should be able to look at the fruit that their teaching produces. And you should be able to distinguish whether they're a true prophet of God or a false prophet. So when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 then to test everything, this is what he has in mind. Test it against the truthfulness of what they say and test them as individuals to see whether they bear the fruits consistent with a true prophet of God. Now, once you've tested, once the testing has occurred, one of two things should happen. And that's where we find in the next two imperatives. They are either to, either to hold fast to what is good, or they are to abstain from every form of evil. Now, when Paul says, hold fast to it, he's, what he's saying here is this. Hold fast to it, cling to it tightly, as if it's truth from God. Because it is. For no prophecy came just of the will of man, but, but God moved the prophets. And when the prophets spoke, it was from God himself. And so when, when they found a true prophet, they were to cling to his words as being from God. On the flip side, if it was not, they were to abstain, have nothing to do with, reject. And, and Paul goes on here to call it evil. Not just a mistake, like, well, it, was, it wasn't accurate or wasn't fully accurate, but it, but it was evil because it claimed to be from God, but it wasn't actually from God. Now, sometimes on this verse, right, verse uh, 21, you, you've heard of abstain from all appearances of evil, and that verse has been preached out of its context lots of times to say that, that things might not be inherently evil, but, but you should abstain from them if it, if it even looks bad, like you know, some people said going to the movies or playing with cards or something like that because, you know, abstain from all appearances of evil. I hope you see in this context that that's not what this verse is talking about. Okay, in the context of prophecy here, what's being unpacked is when you find that a prophet's words are not true, you are to abstain and reject what this individual has said. And instead, you are to hold tightly to those things that are true. Now, Let's, let's start to unpack some, some applications or implications of this passage for us this morning. And as I worked through this, I found this to be an interesting passage because we're dealing with something, prophecy, that I believe is no longer functioning in the church today. So, does this mean that this passage has nothing to say to us by way of application or implication? Well, I think the answer is no. I think there are implications for us, especially since Paul says test everything. Not just prophecy, but test everything to see if it's actually coming from God. So, so we have the responsibility as we, as we uh, listen to sermons, as we observe teaching, as we filter through different ideas, as we, as, we, as we consider various movements that have taken place either in history or now, we have the responsibility to filter everything we see and hear through the grid 
of the truth. To, to identify whether it's from God or not, and we're to hold to that which is true and abstain from that which is evil. So what we need in our day is we need wisdom and we need discernment to decipher that which comes from the Lord. Now, admittedly, this is extremely challenging in our current day, the day we call the information age. And the reason it's challenging is because we have more access to preaching, teaching, biblical information than any generation before us. I mean, if you want to pull up a sermon, you can do so in, in minutes on any topic. You can pull up numerous sermons on, on any topic and, and, and listen to them. Now, that's a tremendous blessing, okay? And it's been very beneficial for, for all of us, I'm sure. But with it comes an incredible possibility for being swept away into error. So now, more than ever, we are in need of discernment to distinguish between that which is right and that which is wrong and that which is true and that which is false. And I think we'd have to admit this is challenging because there's so much information that comes at us so quickly. So to have wisdom and, and discernment is, 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 is very difficult because of the rapid pace at uh, which all this comes. So how do we know whether a particular teaching or idea that's being espoused, how do we know whether or not it comes from God? A few years ago, uh, Pastor Kerr and I were down in Mexico at the, uh, the training school for, uh, for David. And we were, uh, we were talking to the director of the mission organization, and he was telling us about the numerous poor missions philosophies and missions practices that existed in, in the modern missions movement. And our response was kind of like, well, like we haven't been exposed to a lot of that. We're not really familiar with a lot of the, the poor missions practices you're, you're, you're talking about. And he made an interesting statement that I haven't forgotten to this day. And he says this, he says, um, well, you guys are from Detroit Seminary. And he said, so even if you did encounter these philosophies, he said, you would have the antibodies to recognize and reject them. Which was his, he was giving a compliment to the seminary that we attended, not necessarily to like Pastor Curry and I, because he didn't, he didn't know us, all right? So he was just talking about the, the seminary and his interaction with the people that were from that seminary. And he references this idea of, of having the antibodies to reject, or to, to recognize and reject falsehood. Now, I thought that particular analogy was helpful because what happens is it becomes impossible for us to, to have a, a full depth of knowledge at, at every idea that comes at us, right? Because there are ideas that come at us and we're like, oh man, this is like the first time I'm, I'm, I'm ever hearing this word, the first time I'm ever hearing this concept. How do I know if it's, if it's right or wrong, if it's true or, or false, but if we are people of the word and we are grounded in the word and we are mature in the truth, then I think that will give us the antibodies to recognize something and to have our suspicions raised even if we can't fully articulate the position or fully articulate a response. We know because we're so exposed to the truth that something just doesn't seem right about that. 
See, the reason we need this is because error rarely, if ever, comes at us with a full frontal assault. It's always more subtle. It's always more deceptive. And what happens is error often chips away at the more peripheral matters and, and sort of undermines the, the clarity and the authority of the Scripture before it attacks the more central and core elements of, of the faith. Now, there are probably dozens and dozens of examples I could use. But I'm just going to use this one this morning because I think it illustrates it well. But don't get hung up on the illustration because this is bigger, it's bigger than this. So one example is the reason that so many evangelical churches today are weak on the topic of homosexuality goes back to this concept of not having the antibodies to, to recognize things early on. Okay, so what's happening now is, is quote-unquote, evangelical churches are reinterpreting the Bible to allow for homosexuality and to say that that's not actually what Paul was forbidding, uh, but it was something different. Okay. Well, decades before this was an issue, uh, believers were reinterpreting the Bible's role on, on men and women in, in the home and, and in the church. So they were denying things like complementarianism, like leadership of men and, 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 and affirmation of, and submission of, of, of women. Okay? And the hermeneutic that they employed in, in, in getting the Bible to affirm these things, the hermeneutic that they employed was to reinterpret the plain meaning of Scripture. Okay? To take something so, so clearly spelled out in Scripture and to reinterpret and explain it away on, on cultural grounds. And in the process, what they did was that they were, they were chipping away at the authority and clarity of Scripture. Because if you do that, you can make the Scripture say whatever you want it to say. You just find a, a ter- an interpretation that works for you and, you, and you twist it. Like Luther would say, like a, like a waxed nose. Now, is, is biblical manhood and womanhood a first-tier issue? No, it's not. Is, is it the most important issue in our faith? No, it's not. Can a person deny complementarianism or, or biblical manhood and womanhood and still be a believer? Absolutely. But one pastor said it this way, and I think this is accurate. He said this. This issue, okay, what you think of manhood and womanhood, this issue is often the litmus test for what you believe about the authority of the Bible. Because if you twist the clear teaching of Scripture to accommodate the culture on this issue, you will apply the same hermeneutic when the culture ramps up the pressure on other issues. And that's what we're seeing here with the matter of homosexuality, right? The culture is pressing in. So now we need to accommodate the culture and, 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 and reshape what the clear teaching of Scripture says in order that we might be accepted. But long ago, believers lacked the antibodies and the discernment to reject the feminist hermeneutic, and instead many, many people were swayed. They were tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, as Ephesians references. And in the process, they damned many people to hell because they said what is sin is actually okay, that it didn't need repentance. And this happens because believers are not grounded in the truth well enough to develop the antibodies to discern 
what is right and what is wrong. As I said, this is just one example of many examples that, that we can cite. And I think we need to be wise to this fact, that you and I, we can be easily deceived. Okay, we can set up one particular teacher. We can follow everything that particular teacher says and buy it hook, line, and sinker. Or we can fall into to areas that, that they sound good, but we don't always know the full implications of those things. And so we, so we enter into this teaching or this ideology, but we don't, we don't see how it plays out and teases itself out all the way through its implications and its fruit. And we buy into this, and we become deceived and carried about by the waves and every wind of doctrine. So that's why more important than anything else, we need to be people of the word and know what the Word says, and and be deeply grounded in the Word, so that even if we don't recognize every philosophy that's out there, we have the ability to filter it through the truth, that we're a discerning and wise people. So friends, let's, let's test everything. Have the discernment and ability to recognize what is a work of God and what is not a work of God, because we know the Word of God. So we'll test everything, We hold fast to what is good, and we abstain from that which is evil. So may God help us to be people of wisdom and discernment as we walk through what is a confusing age to live. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that we have the truth, we have the word that leads us and guides us, that we have been given the spirit who um, impresses on our hearts the significance of what we see and hear. But Lord, we need, to, we need to go deep. We need to be people who don't just take the truth or take our scriptures casually, but Lord, we devote ourselves to knowing you and, and knowing the word so that we aren't tossed, we aren't driven away by the waves or tossed by the wind, but that we are people who are rooted and grounded in the truth and able to resist the error of our day.